I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Greetings. This is Bill, and welcome to episode 29 of Chasing Ghosts in a Regular Warfare podcast. The title of this episode is U.S. Military Special Operations Forces, a focus on the U.S. Army. And greetings from the new bunker relocated from Arizona to Florida, where we have happily ensconced ourselves. I really love it here. I am a returning Floridian, so it's been wonderful. I've gotten some really interesting correspondence after the last episode and some folks who investigated earlier episodes and wrote me about that. I so appreciate the kind words, the comments, and the really interesting insight that I get from my listeners when they write me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. So a shout out to all of you guys who have done that. Um, Several wrote me and asked, from Steel Industries, just north of me in Bradenton, when I got my PVS, what model did I get? And I wanted to tell everybody which one that is. I got the PVS 14 Elbit Milspec Gen 3 thin-filmed white phosphor. For those of you who are used to the old-school green phosphor, this makes all the difference. I'm really looking forward to the future where we have a cool, a cool color spectrum or a full color spectrum in night vision devices, but... Apparently, we haven't reached that technology yet. So again, that would be the PVS-14 Elbit Milspec Gen 3 thin-filmed white phosphor. Also picked up the Spendy Wilcox G24 mount, which will fit on your Nerodos on a helmet, whether you have a Mitch or the, or the Opscore Guts or whatever the case may be. And I decided to go with the Night Fighters J-Arm, and I'm very pleased with it. So there it is. Now, before we get into the meat of today's podcast concerning a deep dive into U.S. Army vanilla soft organizations, what I'd like to do is I've got some, uh, again, thank you to all my listeners who write me. I've got some great messages that came to me and um, amplified, illuminated, or elucidated to a greater and more accurate degree what I talked about in the last episode. And one of those things I talked about in the last episode concerned the U.S. Air Force and the FID organization that they have. Now, I got a really interesting email from someone concerning that very thing, and they gave me a lot more specific organization. So I wanted to read from that. So it says, and I, and I quote, I just finished your most recent installment, episode 28, U.S. Military Special Operations Forces, a primer. Really fascinating look at all the soft components of each branch, some of whom I've had the pleasure of dealing with. It continues, in your section about the USAF Special Operations, which was very cool, you mentioned a unit that conducts a similar mission to that of Army SF, which is Aviation FID or AVFID, which is Foreign Internal Defense, and Security Force Assistance. The community of airmen who conduct this mission are Combat Aviation Advisors, or CAAs. I thought you may be interested to know that this mission has been put on an indefinite pause. The active unit tasked with this mission, the 6th SOS, Special Operations Squadron, was recently shuttered and remissioned to a C-130 squadron at Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico. 
The reserve CAA com- counterpart, the 711th SOS, was the last soft unit in the military that conducts fixed-wing advising. The 711th had been placed into a dormant status and is awaiting remissioning. No one knows what yet. There's still a lot of talent hanging out in hopes that the 711th will pick up what AFSOC has rebranded the advising mission as the TAUS. This could happen, but the remaining 711th members are well aware that this could and likely will go the way of the 6th SOS, which was decommissioned. Some of the former 6th members have been farmed out to the new TAUS units, which are still being stood up, while the rest have scattered to the wind or retired. Nearly all of the CAA alumni are deeply saddened by AFSOC's decision to end this mission. Time will tell what the TAUs are capable of, or if they'll even be heavily involved in irregular warfare, since our construct is a bit different. It's tough to imagine the USAAF not having a hand in AVFID, Foreign Internal Defense, but times they are changing. End of quote. Got a lengthy email response from a listener who goes by the initials JB, who has an intimate knowledge of SOCOM that far exceeds mine or any of my colleagues who I've spoken with in previous years. And he says, quote, insofar as you outline the organizational hierarchy of the SOF enterprise, you were very much on the money in general terms. However, I would like to politely correct the part about WARCOM and its subordinate structure. WARCOM is where I refer to certain SEAL organizations. I would have to double-check the current WARCOM organizational matrix for up-to-date structure, which is to say that I may be off by a little bit, but my understanding of the WARCOM organizational structure is as follows. NAVSPEC WARCOM, or WARCOM for short, equals one, sometimes two, star flag. uh, That's two stars. Flag officer level commands, always a Navy SEAL officer. Interestingly enough, we have the first SWIC Force Master Chief, that's a senior enlisted advisor, serving there at this time, which is historically significant because prior to his selection, it has always been a SEAL Master Chief that occupied the Force SEA role. Anyways, WARCOM directly reports to SOCOM as the force provider for naval special warfare capabilities and for funding soft, unique things. More on this later. WARCOM also reports to Big Blue Navy for non-soft, unique funding requirements and the general care and taking of naval personnel, special or otherwise break from me. What that would be is what happens before when instead of having a specialized soft designator as an occupational specialties, SEALs used to be assigned, let's say, their bosun's mate rating or their torpedoman rating and had to maintain currency not only in being a SEAL, but also in that rating to advance in promotion, but they haven't done that for a while. Again, quote, under WARCOM, you have 06 level commands. That would be a captain in the U.S. Navy. Naval Special Warfare Groups, NSWG 1, 2, 3, 4, and 10. Their roles and responsibilities changed over the years, but essentially the breakdown is this. NSWG 1, Oversight over SEAL Teams 1, 3, 5, and 7, West Coast, Coronado. NSWG 2, Oversight of SEAL Teams 2, 4, 8, 10, East Coast, Little Creek, Virginia. NSWG 3, NSWG 4, Oversight of Special Boat Teams, that would be 12, 20, and 22. 12 is in Coronado, 20 is in Little Creek, and 22. His former team is in Stennis, Mississippi. I believe NSWG 4 has also taken on a couple other commands, but can't speak to that matter-of-factly right now. NSWG 10 equals oversight of the support activities for all of these organizations. Well, that is an old name. Can't remember what the going naming convention is now, but there are two teams. 
one based in Coronado, one in Little Creek, those each being the respective critical masses for SEAL teams on either coast, each supporting the SEAL teams and SBTs, the special boat units in their respective coast, with SBT-22 pulling from either according to need. And there are also reserve teams, apparently 17 and 18, respectively. Now, below the NSWG level, you have the respective teams, all commanded by an O5. In this case, would be a commander. Subordinate to the teams, other respective platoons, troops, generally commanded by an O3 SEAL, or in some cases, a SWIC warrant officer at the SBTs, as there is no officer ascension in the SWIC community. I always had a SEAL O3 as my task unit or troop commander. That is a quote from the email. The composition of the various teams in terms of manpower strength can differ between teams and their mission task organizations, but generally speaking, the numbers that I had elucidated earlier are okay. Now JB goes on to discuss MARSOC. Quote, your comment about MARSOC wanting to get in on the special funding regarding that relatively new establishment and coming into the soft community writ large couldn't be more accurate. Historically speaking, the USMC regarded all Marines as special and didn't want anything to do with the soft enterprise. That is, until after 911, and the money started flowing to SOCOM by the pallet load. I have many thoughts about this, but here's the simple truth of the matter. MARSOC does not bring any unique or special capabilities to the mix that were not already present in the soft enterprise via USASOC, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, and WARCOM, which we just discussed earlier. Effectively, they have the same mission sets as USASOC Army with minor caveats, and serve mostly, in my humble opinion, as a force multiplier in terms of additional trigger pullers in the mix. Recall that during the time of their creation, SOF, not unlike the services, was surging in response to the escalating war efforts in OAF and OEF. That would be for Iraq and Afghanistan and the ramp-up, respectively. Few will admit this, but between tail end of 05 and early 06 and through 0809, the SOF community broke two of its founding truths. Soft cannot be mass-produced, and competent soft cannot be created after emergencies occur. To meet the insatiable appetite for soft by the COCOMs, primarily CENTCOM, and also SOCOM feeding that, as a result, training standards were lowered, and a lot of dudes that would have probably washed out of the assessment and selection pipeline ended up making it through the various crucibles and donned the SOF nomenclature. Ask me how I know, end of quote. What you discover is that there's really no surge capability in soft, despite what soft may say or what pressure is applied to them, because they're volunteers in so many ways. They're volunteers to come into the service. They're volunteers to, let's say, in the Army, take on parachute duty. They're volunteers to go through the soft assessment and selection pipeline. Eventually, in Army Special Forces, for instance, finding themselves going to Fort Bragg to go through the Special Forces selection course, the qualification course, and, of course, donning their, their uh, Green Berets and designated tabs of Special Forces, which may be rocking above the Ranger rocker that they already have on their left sleeve. Continuing JB's correspondence. Quote, anyhow, Marsoc's birth into the soft enterprise was a struggle up until the early to mid-2010s. What they did benefit from, though, was a tremendous amount of funding and purpose-built state-of-the-art facilities for this new endeavor, compared to the dilapidated and multi-time renovated facilities of USASOC, AFSOC, and WARCOM. If nothing else, the custom-made bronze K-bar door handles adorning all the glass doors 
to the front of their headquarters building gives away the level of thought that went into making sure their entry into the soft community was up to par. I'm being sarcastic, obviously. All that being said, I have worked with a good number of MARSOC operators and have the distinct privilege of training many of them to go into harm's way and prosecute targets with a highly sophisticated weapon system in a former life. They're good, hardworking, and focused guys with a penchant for taking the fight to the enemy. I don't take issue with them as individuals, but I don't see what they bring to the table other than an additional manpower added to the soft bench strength, which begs the question, why not have just added more SEAL platoons or SF battalions? I don't know what the cost-to-benefit analysis was that made it more advantageous to create an entirely new two-star headquarters and the subordinate operational and tactical level infrastructure to enhance soft bench strength over utilizing already established AS pipelines assessment and selection and command structure within WARCOM and USASOC. Note MARSOC's assessment and selection pipeline associated specialized training was all created from the ground up at first without SOCOM being too much involved and they learned many a lesson the hard way with respect to training and standardization. A few years after their initial hack it at all, they finally came around and asked for help from SOCOM J7 to essentially draw from decades of precedent and lessons learned. Who would have thought, end of quote. Now, in the last episode, I had posited that the combat controllers, the AFSOC combat controllers, may, may be the single most lethal human beings in the history of planetary warfare on Earth, and I stand by that. From JB, quote, your remarks about the AFSOC combat controllers being the single most valuable member on any soft team couldn't be more accurate. As a single individual, they bring more combined combat capability and power to the fight than any other single member of a team and are some of the most dynamic and highly specialized trained folks we have. I know many seasoned and experienced CCTs, and they are all top-notch guys that I'd go to war with any day. As an aside, if you ever want to interview or talk to the CCT, who was embedded with the initial 5th Special Forces Group ODA that went into Afghanistan post-911 and helped to liberate Masada al-Sharif from the Taliban with General Dostum and the Northern Alliance, the horse soldier story. I can arrange that. End of quote. Thank you, JB. JB goes on, quote, in general terms, I think that SOCOM was created out of necessity post-Operation Eagle Claw. That would be the Iranian operation, the failed one in 1979-1980, due to obvious shortfalls across the joint soft enterprise at that time. I also think that time has passed, and we don't have the same problems or imperatives as we did then, but never let a crisis go to waste, right? All good intentions aside, post-911, when the GWAT money started falling from the sky, everyone wanted a piece of it, and naturally soft was in high demand. Headquarters went from just under 1,000 people on staff in Tampa in 1999 to 2001, depending on who you count, to over 5K strong when I left the staff in 2016. If that isn't extraordinary growth, I don't know what is. I would say candidly that at that time I was there, and I have no reason to believe it has changed and that you could have trimmed the proverbial fat by at least 75%, the headquarters would not have lost any capability or capacity to fulfill its mission. I stand by that and can argue to the point of filibustering because I was part of many projects that, that looked at manpower studies and the like to right-size these headquarters. Unfortunately, despite all attempts at leaner and meaner SOCOM staff, SOCOM always ended up adding instead of reducing one big problem that contributed to this, and still does, is the fact that despite the wars and missions changing over time and technology giving us abilities we didn't have before, SOCOM has not had a good record of divesting of spe specified or implied tasks from the last war missions. Which is to say that 
There are many task jobs that the headquarters is responsible for that are directed by Congress, CJCS, and the other authorities that have just continued to be added up over time. Not streamlined or divested of when they became obsolete or unnecessary, and so forth. I can go into great detail here as well, but for sake of discussion right now, I won't. Bottom line, SOCOM could stop doing a bunch of things that are no longer necessary and are required, but because it still exists on some official task or old memo directive, it means people still have jobs. And that fundamentally is a problem at SOCOM. It has become a jobs program at SOCOM and keeps people employed at astronomical cost to the taxpayer when compared to private sector equivalent examples. Speaking, of course, about the federal civilian and contractor workforce, that comprises 70 to 80% of the staff. An example I might offer is that of Joint Forces Command. I wasn't around or involved during the creation of this beast, but I was a stakeholder during the disestablishment and decommissioning of Joint Forces Command. It was obviously established for a purpose. That purpose was service, and then some smart people finally decided it had outlived its utility, and they killed it. Thank goodness. I think GIFCOM perhaps represents a good case study of the government doing something at least halfway right. Maybe you could offer some insight into GIFCOM than I can. I can't offer much. My involvement with them was a very niche mission area outside of using their joint pubs for reference. I didn't really understand what their purpose was. So there it is. Another example, of course, would be the Asymmetric Warfare Group, which was established for a purpose, served that purpose well, then was decommissioned once they outlived their utility. So again, he goes on. A common misconception about SOCOM is the legal authorities it has from Congress as both a combatant command and a service-like entity. I say service-like because SOCOM has Title X authority, but only for those things soft unique that the services don't provide for the respective arms of the soft community. So effectively, the commander of SOCOM, four Star Wars, two hats. One is a geographic combatant commander with global responsibility versus general. And the other is Title X, man train, equip, soft. The Title X funding from Congress represents the majority of funding SOCOM gets to operate on and directs most everything. However, there are programs and aspects of the soft enterprise that SOCOM has purview over that are funded through other channels or what I call other people's money, OPM. Bottom line here is that no conversation about SOCOM and its mission and roles and responsibilities can be had without understanding how and where the money comes from. It's absolutely critical to the discussion and to quote. So again, thanks, JB and my other correspondent for that really illuminating detail about things that I didn't happen to know about these vanilla soft organizations. So what we're going to do today is sort of a deep dive into U.S. Army Special Operations Forces. And if you're interested in the doctrinal connective tissue and and, uh, how this all works and the, the skeletal framework for it, I would recommend Army Doctrine Publication uh, 3-05, Special Operations, and Army Doctrine Reference Publication, that's an ADRP, 3-05, Special Operations, if you want to dig a little deeper into this. As with all things concerning doctrine, doctrine tends to be very flabby and agile and can be broken at any time. So it just gives you a uh, a broad outline of intent, not tempered by action. So when you dig into that ADP, then ADERP, and you talk about what the intent and ambition is of USASOC, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, and what they hope to achieve, they describe the role of U.S. Army SOF in the U.S. Army's doctrinal concept to shape operational environments, prevent conflict, and when necessary, 
help win our nation's wars. It, those are sort of squeaky ambitions, not necessarily proven out by history, as we know and as I like to pound the table about. Since 1945, the U.S. has consistently lost every large and small conflict that it's gotten into or simply made them worse through bad judgment and bad military thinking. When you look at the Army, this land component, which can be delivered via air, of course, or in the future by U.S. Space Force via dropships, which I can't wait to see come to fruition. Army Special Operations has an operational environment that they describe as complex, ambiguous, non-contiguous. It's rapidly evolving situations. Of course they are. Geopolitical sensitivities, whole-of-government approach, blah, blah, blah. They go through all of this in their doctrine, but they don't necessarily follow through when it comes to the things that they do on the ground, as evidenced by the manifest failures across the board of big green army and smaller army, direct action army, in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Horn of Africa, Yemen, Libya, you name it, or as we've seen since October 7th, and the unpleasantness between Israel and Gaza and the Arab world, things aren't working out as they wish them to be. So when you look at the Army Special Operations mission, and it doesn't differ too much from the other ones, is that when they want to execute through what they call critical capabilities, which are special warfare as an umbrella rubric term, and surgical strike, by means of Special Operations Core Principles, which is discrete, precise, and scalable operations, guided by what they call Special Operations Regional Mechanisms, which would be assessment, shaping, active, de active deterrence, influence, disruption. All of this, by the way, takes place with a very sophisticated and flattened hierarchy of intelligence gathering, the creation of actionable intelligence, and the targeting of said actionable intelligence on declaration of intent and going in there and taking care of these things. And they do this through their operations structure. So, you know, they'll, they'll do this conducting the operational art through the operations process, the framework such as that decisive shaping and sustaining and the deep, close, and security, and the warfighting functions. And the warfighting functions, interestingly enough, those sort of provide the intellectual organization for these common critical tasks. Again, that would be the logistical and intelligence preparations for these very small forces. Remember when I talked about in the last episode of strategic compression, which is one could say that it's almost the very short definition of special operations where one is trying to achieve strategic objectives through tactical means, most likely with very small teams and very highly trained teams. So when it comes to special warfare and surgical strike missions, it's going to be 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, 10th, 19th, and 20th special forces groups that are going to be the primary means that that will be achieved. 19th and 20th of that listing happen to be the National Guard organizations. There used to be two Army Reserve organizations, 11th and 12th, 12th of whom I am an alumnus, that were later, later um, decommissioned and folded into 19th and 20th group. 
you've got combatant commanders and extremist forces, which are the tier three forces that are waiting for tier one forces, which would be Delta and CAG and other organizations like that STS-26 from the Air Force that would come in to relieve them once they have initially done the in extremist mission. That would be Charlie first, the first special forces group, Bravo second or third special forces group, Alpha first, the fifth special forces group, Charlie third of the seventh special forces group, Charlie first of the 10th special forces group and Charlie second of the 10th special forces group. Those last two in the first that I mentioned, Charlie one, one, Charlie one, one is in Okinawa. And of course, 110 and 210 are in Europe. Those happen to be the ones that are the forward deployed special forces battalions outside of CONUS. And of course, there are special mission units, the SMOOs and others that, because I'm just dealing in vanilla soft and wish to do so and not deal in the, uh, the dark side of soft, I don't have any information to give you on that. You can find it where you wish. 75th Ranger Regiment with reactive battalions. There's the 95th Civil Affairs Brigade, which I think is out of Fort Bragg. There's the 4th and 8th MISO groups, which is Military Information Support Operations Groups Airborne. I don't know if the Army has quite got its act together as far as the proper integration of civil affairs and psychological operations and MISO and, and getting those things working together. Maybe those out there who are smarter than me about it can write in and let me know. There's the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which is the, for the most part, rotary wing organization out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and it has some organizations stationed elsewhere. And then, of course, there's the 528th Sustainment Brigade, Special Operations Airborne, which is the primary logistical organization serving Army Special Forces. I'd mentioned earlier there are Special Operations Corps principles that the Army has adopted. Those would be discrete, precise, and scalable. And all that means is the operations are discrete by deliberately reducing the signature of that U.S. presence or assistance. Precise in that their targeting focuses on eliminating collateral damage or reducing it, and through the use of dedicated intelligence to identify and target both individuals and systems. In other words, making that actionable intelligence operate in a fashion where there is very little damage absent the surgical application of force. Scalable, and that's directly associated with the way the Army Special Operations Forces are organized, trained, and equipped. Now, the Army, like all the services, talks about employing regional mechanisms, and those are the primary methods through which friendly forces affect indigenous populations. There's a lot of whitewashing and a lot of ambition, and a lot, talk is cheap when it comes to this. And when you see what they want to do, I applaud it. When I see how it's applied, I don't. They use assessment, which is sustained engagement with enduring partners, which can be done through foreign internal defense missions, where special operations organizations go to friendly, permissive environments and train up their armed forces, whether conventional or special operations forces, to the ways that America and the West does business. Uh, shaping, which is condition-setting activities that facilitate potential future operations. One of the ways this is done is by having consistent familial and collegial liaisons between U.S. Army officers and Army officers from the region or states that are there and developing those relationships over time. 
There's active deterrence, which is proactively employ capacity building activities to dissuade adversaries. There's influence, which of course we would see as black and white propaganda. And there's disruption, which would degrade the effectiveness of adversaries and threats. To give you an idea of what disruption would be, is that back in the 90s and the early 2000s, and this did apply in Iraq and lesser so to Afghanistan to a certain extent, is that when First Group had their organizational missions in Korea, specifically in North Korea, to go up and do strategic reconnaissance missions to take a determination on the main thrust of southern-bound North Korean forces into South Korea proper, how would one do that? Well, you'd go there by infilling and inserting teams, which, by the way, was an incredibly silly notion to take a team of 8, 10, 12 Americans, several of these teams, infiltrate them via MH60 or, at that time, MH53 possibly, uh, rotary wing birds that would infill them stealthily or more discreetly than most and put them on the ground and then hoping that with 7 to 10 days of total rations and logistical support on hand after they achieve their mission, they would be extracted via an air exfiltration. Well, when they did the numbers and they discovered that all the MH platforms by D plus 10 or D plus 13 in a Korean conflict would not be available, what they said to the guys was, you simply have to walk out. Now imagine you're well-fed Americans who probably don't speak Korean and you certainly don't speak the dialect of North Koreans trying to make their way through North Korea to friendly lines or the coast for an exfiltration via the ocean possibly. Impossible. Couldn't happen. And these are some of the extrapolated what-ifs that really doomed if, uh, if the balloon went up in, in Korea, that would really doom these teams to imprisonment injury, or death as a result of this really piss-poor planning. When it comes to the U.S. Army at Fort Bragg and their special operations characteristics, they always like to say that they have a low visibility or clandestine nature. And by the way, for those of you out there, the distinction between the words covert and clandestine are pretty important and, and pretty abused out there. All covert means is that you go there under an assumed cover where you're under an alias. What clandestine means is it's black to black where you don't go in under an alias, but it's a, a completely black mission in which you're not posing as anybody but who you are, and you go in as discreetly as possible and leave as discreetly as possible, which is associated, of course, with the minimal signature on the ground. And fostering habitual indigenous relationships apart, apart from those two things that I just uh, talked about, I think is really one of the primary characteristics of success in the decades of SOF and especially Army Special Forces prior to the Middle Eastern conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, they're used to employ precise and timely actions and messages. And I will tell you, there is something about Army Special Forces, well, there's many things about it that I enjoy or, or like to see as, as, a, as a proper way to do things. But one of them is, in January 2020, there was an update to the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide, which talks about brief backs and back briefs and the planning process and the execution process and such. For your professional and personal life, if you guys managed to get a copy of that, 
I would uh, urge you to take a look at it. I know it's 186 pages. It does have a table of contents where you can go through it and, and look at it as you wish. But there is no better planning process than what happens when a team is given a mission by their commander and they have to go into an ISOFAC, an isolation facility, for 24 to 72 hours, depending on the timeline. And they come up with a plan to meet the commander's intent, meet with the commander at the end of that time, and discuss and say, this is the intent that you gave us. This is how we'll execute it. And they get the commander's write-off on that or modifications to the plan they came up with. And then they go out and execute. I'm not aware of any other organization outside of the U.S. Army that does it like this, although I suspect in Air Force Special Operations Command, because of the importance of planning and because of the importance of uh, logistics and those kind of things, they probably got that wired for sound, too. So anyhow, that's called the Special Forces Detachment Mission Planning Guide. This one happens to be January 2020. I would urge all my listeners interested to take a look at this extraordinary document of the reams and reams and 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 buckling shelves of doctrine and military books that are cranked out by the DOD and joint publications. This is the, one of the most valuable ones you will ever find in application to your professional and personal life. So we go to USASOC. They talk about their characteristics of special operations soldiers. They want them to be language trained, regionally aligned, culturally astute, politically nuanced, trained in mediation negotiation, expected to operate autonomously, proficient at interorganizational coordination, proficient with and enabled by application of advanced technologies. That's all nice. Those are all great ambitions. But what we see happening, because of what I have mentioned on a number of episodes, where, quoting a friend of mine who I served with in first Special Forces group, Special Forces got drunk on direct action, and they never looked back in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and all the other expanding theaters of conflict at the beginning of the 21st century, and ruined their ability to conduct unconventional warfare, guerrilla operations, partisan operations, and even a very uh, aggressive foreign internal defense portfolio. Because while I just read language trained, that's really difficult to maintain. Regionally aligned, the special forces groups do that. For instance, when I was in first, we were aligned to Southeast Asia. Culturally astute, there's that. Politically nuanced, not at all, because there's no political nuance that's in either the officer, NCO, or lesser so the enlisted corps in soft organizations, the Army, but I would say across the board. The only political nuances that are probably practiced is those who have ambition to be field grade or flag officers will learn the proper amounts of being colon connoisseurs and politically aligned to the politics of their internal organizations to get promotions. But as far as being politically keen, even the intelligence folks, to the countries or regions that they are observing, reporting on, and trying to influence, not the case at all. Exhibit A is the fact that we find in the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan, and all of the other burgeoning conflict zones out of there to include Syria, Libya, Yemen, Horn of Africa. The Muslims have broken the code and wired for sound the ability to absolutely dominate the narrative, especially with videos and any cultural messaging modalities within their respective countries. They absolutely kill it when it comes to doing that well. America, not so much. And we are confining ourselves to assessing 
the efficacy of the U.S. Army Special Operations Forces. So there's something called a a um, a continuum for operations, and on the left axis you've got your proportional level of effort, and then you've got your threshold for major combat operations on the horizontal axis. Among those is influence assessment, shaping, active deterrence, disruption. And then, of course, with all of those things, we have to keep in mind that U.S. Army Special Forces and Special Operations Organizations and all, I would say, American and Western Special Operations Forces modality, keep in mind that they don't engage in linear conflict necessarily, and it could be nonlinear, in that everything from pre-conflict to conflict to post-conflict can involve the application of special operations forces. So now you know a little bit more about U.S. Army Special Operations Forces, what comprises them, who they are, composition, disposition, what they do. But one thing I want to add on here, it is my podcast after all, so I can have the editorial content that I wish, is that of the five primary missions, which is direct action, counterterrorism, strategic reconnaissance, unconventional warfare, and foreign internal defense, American special forces organizations only do two of those well, and that would be foreign internal defense, and they're not doing it as well as they used to, and direct action, which I think has been to the decrement of what special forces as an historical and potentially efficacious organization, the application of strategic compression has been. I've made the case in previous podcasts that Leave it to light infantry units, leave it to the Marines, leave it to the Rangers to do the direct action, sexy, kick down the door, shoot people in the face missions, the missions where you're abducting people and doing those kind of things. I get it. I'm a gun guy. I love shooting. I love competing. I love doing all those things. But that has been done to the decrement of conducting, for instance, unconventional warfare. It is my supposition that when it comes to unconventional warfare, which is counter-guerrilla or the creation of guerrilla forces or the creation of partisan forces behind enemy lines with a lot of sustainment challenges where you're doing it untethered and as an organization, you don't have all the support that you so richly deserve in past conflicts to do that, they have lost that capability. Now, last October, the DOD... Pentagon, Joint Forces, stood up an irregular warfare initiative. I haven't seen much from it. I would welcome input or details from folks who are involved directly or indirectly with that initiative as far as what they're tackling. And I'm hoping that they're tackling this very thing that I'm discussing, which is the complete inability of U.S. Army Special Forces and anybody else assigned within the force structure of the U.S. military to do these kind of things, to actually raise partisan forces, to conduct these foreign internal defense missions in non-permissive environments, to raise these guerrilla forces behind enemy lines. Because I'll tell you this, in this era of near-peer and peer conflict, and there will be war again, and war will continue, America will continue its almost undiminished record since the end of World War II to lose conflicts it gets involved in, whether large or small. Not only can 
U.S. Army Special Forces and all the organizations tasked with that very mission within the American defense structure do that. They can't do counter unconventional warfare efforts. And you may ask yourself, thanks, David Byrne, what is counter unconventional warfare? It's a strategy encompassing a whole of government approach to synchronize the pillars of a regular warfare to integrate joint interagency, intergovernmental, and multinational partner efforts against adversary unconventional warfare activities. And those are activities conducted to enable a resistance movement or insurgency to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow a government or occupying power by operating through or with an underground auxiliary and guerrilla force in a denied area. That is from Joint Publication 3-05, which I discussed earlier. What this means in simpler terms is that a means to coordinating checkmating adversaries' growing capabilities, which avoid current Western overmatching combat strengths, is simply not there. And yes, this happens to be a rubric term under the umbrella term of counterinsurgency, and all of my listeners know how I feel about the Western efficacy of defeating insurgents, which isn't too good at all. I mean, historical experience shows that irregular warfare has been the predominant form of warfare since 1775. Yet, America in the West hasn't broken the code on how to defeat it. One reason for that is because the U.S. government lacks a cohesive irregular warfare strategy to counter adversary unconventional warfare campaigns conducted by state and non-state actors. And this has hindered the U.S.-NATO response to Russian aggression, for instance, in the Ukraine. U.S. government has to develop a comprehensive framework to plan and execute regional and global IW strategies. Maybe that initiative I mentioned that started last October will do that very thing, but I highly doubt it. You know, to develop this effective IW campaign plans, the joint force has to improve its own IW capabilities and develop their operational art based upon that. And the planning tools involved and all that. And none of that is happening. And I hope that I am wrong. And I hope that some listeners correct me and show me that whether it's the Irregular Warfare Initiative or SOCOM or the various service parochial special operations forces have taken this bull by the horns and said, yep, we have an effective way to prosecute this kind of conflict for counter UW. So I was looking for examples of how this was done. I ran across this really interesting article by Charles L. Smith called Soviet Maskarovko, Air Power Journal 2, number 1, spring 1988. He brought up some really interesting things with the use case of Russia. And in this case, remember, it's spring of 1988, so the Soviet Union still exists. So he says, quote, the Soviet previous military doctrine was based on the levels of Maskarovka. Maskarovka is the art of using camouflage, denial, and deception to achieve desired effects. The key features of Maskarovka are the maintenance of plausible deniability, concealment of forces, disinformation, and the use of decoy or dummy structures to confuse opponents' ability to predict and respond to actions. Russia's new generation warfare incorporates many key principles of Maskarovka by modernizing the principles through the use of new technologies. End of quote. Now, remember, this is 1988. And now, if my listeners would take the time to look up gray zone and hybrid warfare, you will see that the greatest practitioners of that at this time are the Russians and, to a lesser extent, some of the other BRICS countries. 
This Russian new generation warfare from the 1980s is employing a coordinated whole-of-government approach that leverages their hegemonic strengths at the time regionally. So when I extrapolate that, as Smith calls it, rigorous calculus and constraint-based strategy, you will see on ex post facto examination of Russian intervention in Lithuania from 1990-91, Moldova 89-92, Georgia 1989-93, and 2008, and then, of course, in 2008 and 2014 in the Ukraine and what happened there. And, of course, what happened in the West is they responded with color revolutions, which I'm going to cover in a future episode in detail, which started as an, as an American campaign in 1984-86 in the Philippines, where they used the voting mechanisms and the political mechanisms in there to make sure that those in power were favorable to American national security interest, whether neutral or beneficial. What this tells us is that Russia is not only using a military approach, but also a political military approach, which is part and parcel of how unconventional warfare operations work and counter-unconventional warfare operations work. The point I'm making here is that Russia and China and all of the near-peer and peer adversaries that are here contemporaneously and in the future are all very busy trying to hone the edge of both unconventional warfare and counter-unconventional warfare. Remember the quote by T.E. Lawrence, quote, it seems that rebellion must have an unassailable base, something guarded not merely from attack, but from fear of it, end of quote. We need to take these into account with the future conflicts that America is going to be involved in. So unconventional warfare and is sort of like FID in a non, non-permissive environment. FID, of course, being foreign internal defense in a permissive environment where one is usually invited by a country to train their forces. In this case, one is training partisan forces behind enemy lines. There was a bright and shining light in October, November, December 2001 with the famous horse soldiers from 5th Special Forces Group going in and assisting the Northern Alliance in a classic building and rebuilding of a partisan force, literally behind enemy lines, that occurred then, which was swiftly crushed out and snuffed by the entry of Big Green and Big U.S. Army and Big Joint Forces into Afghanistan and the absolute cratering of the ability to win the war in Afghanistan whatever the hell that means. So nonetheless, the point that I'm making here is that of all the U.S. Army Special Forces, and in this case, U.S. Army Special Operations Forces, imperatives, organizational missions, and such, it is this most important mission of unconventional warfare that is pretty much the germinous and birthing reason for Special Forces in the first place has been neglected for decades, and it is morbid, if not dead, as we speak, and something has to be done to correct that. So I wanted to thank all my listeners. This is Bill Bupert, and I am signing off. And thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, concerns, constructive criticism, you may get in touch with me at cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. Thanks for your listenership, and This is Bill, out.